Are you looking for freedom? Freedom from the daily grind and hustle? Or just finding a way to live the life you always wanted? Then join us on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala. Thank you for joining me on the Investing for Freedom podcast. I am super excited about the show we have in front of you today. I've got Mike Hananil on the podcast, and I've had the privilege of getting to know Mike um, through GoBundance. And I'll be honest, my mind was blown at the last event that we just got back from at Breckenridge. Um, Just listening to Mike talk on a panel uh, called Cash is Trash, which is kind of what inspired uh, my my last little podcast rant. But... There's a few people in my life, um, Robert Kiyosaki being one of them, Ed Griffin, who I've had the privilege of spending some time with at dinner and on the Real Estate Guys cruise over the last few years um, that have really just changed my way of thinking. And next to uh, you know them two and, and probably Jim Rickards as well, uh, Mike Hananel has probably uh, really been an advocate around some of the things that I agree with. And so... I'm excited to uh, have him on the show. So, Mike, I appreciate you uh, carving out the time and, and being here for us. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. So stay tuned because we're going to get into some really interesting stuff. But, you know, we've, we've got we've to do the thing. We've got to get to know Mike Cannonell a little bit here. So, Mike, who's had the greatest impact on your life? Well, I mean, I would say probably my parents formed me at a very young age. So I would say they had a huge impact. But professionally... Um, I would say I had a mentor who was really like my first real boss at at my first real job back when I was in college. Uh, Her name is Sandra Love, and she was my boss, but also my mentor. She taught me so much about business and how to operate in business. Um, She also uh, showed me what vision means and what it means to have a vision. She had a vision of creating a cologne uh, because I was in the cosmetics industry back then, and uh, the cologne was for Michael Jordan, which at that time in the mid nineties was, you know, while he was, you know, at the peak of his basketball career. So he was pretty busy, but yet she did not give up on her dream for five years of, uh, of wanting to do a cologne. And for five years, he said no. And his manager, David Fox said no. And she just never took no for an answer and just kept pursuing it and kept pursuing it. And eventually after five years, uh, one day we got a visit from Michael when he was shooting uh, his Warner Brothers uh, picture Space Jam with all the Looney Tunes characters. And we got a call that he was coming over to see us in the office. And my boss, Sandra, was so excited and jumping for joy. Oh, my God, Michael's on his way. I'm like, Michael, Michael Jordan. Oh, my God. And so it was just an amazing moment after five years of really I was the guy behind the scenes in charge of operations, like getting things done, getting samples made, getting new concepts developed. Uh, but she showed me what it means to have a vision. And no matter what the world out there tells you, you're singularly focused on hitting that vision no matter what. And uh, I learned so much not only from, from, from that, but also just the way in which she treated people, the way in which she showed love and compassion in business. Um, and, you know, especially nowadays, capitalism sort of has, seems to have a, a, an ugly tone to it, the way the media is portraying it. But actually... Um, most of the capitalists that I know or people in business that I know tend to be loving, compassionate, giving people. 
and uh, she was a prime example of that. So for, for me in business, I would say it had to be Sandra. But then, of course, I can't leave out my wife, who also had a profound impact on me. And, and we have two beautiful boys. So, you know, since Sandra in those days, you know, I would say lifelong impact, my wife by far. That's <laughs> the awesome. biggest impact in, in so many ways. That's she's cool. a rock star as well in business. And and uh, she's also a visionary and a, a marketing genius, uh, still in the cosmetics industry, which is where I met her. Nice. So Very there cool. you go. I gave you a few people, but I tried to focus it on one. No, I like it. <laughs> I like it. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I, I had no idea you were, came from the cosmetics industry. That's cool. Yep. That, that was my background. Yep. We might circle back to that. If you could narrow it down to one thing that has had the greatest impact on your success, what do you think that would be? Um, I would say it's my ability to reinvent myself. Um, I feel like many times in my life, I'm like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly <laughs> at different stages and in different aspects of my life. Um, but I'm always somebody who's searching for growth and development, personal development. I'm always, you know, obviously with you involved in GoBundance, which is a huge, been huge for my personal development, but you know, even things like Tony Robbins and just any kind of chance to, to learn and grow. Um, I feel like I've probably been able to reinvent myself many different times in my career, my personal life, and my spiritual life. Um, and that's what has certainly made, I think, my life interesting, but also made me um, always sort of excited about the next, the next, uh, you know, the next butterfly that I might become. I don't know what it will be. And often I don't, it's not things that I necessarily plan, but just sort of how your life just goes. Um, you know, that ability to see the world sort of with new eyes each time, um, I think allows me to uh, to grow and evolve and, you know, and it's created a lot of success in my life in different areas of my life. But um, it's something I, I, I think is pretty unique. I love that. Um, a lot of times I, talk at investing for freedom. I try to keep it simple, but there's just kind of a five part formula that I talk through. What do you really want? Why do you want it? What are you going to do to get it? Measure results. And then the last part is adjust. And this is where I start to lose people a lot of times because people get so focused on, and I think a lot of this is our training, you know, go to, go to school, go to college, get good grades, get a job, you know, spend the rest of your life working for, we, we don't give ourselves permission to change. And I think that's so important, the ability to reinvent yourself. I love hearing you say that. We might, we might unpackage that some more. But so many times yeah. I have people come back to me and talk about that adjust part. Well, you know, we're not supposed to just set our goals aside and this and that. Well, I agree with that until you decide that you've changed what you want to do in life or your outcome or whatever. And you're in charge of that. So I, I love that. That's pretty, pretty powerful. What was your greatest setback and what did you learn from it? Well, I mean, as you know, as an entrepreneur, you have a lot of setbacks over over time. Uh, I'd say one of my biggest one was when I put myself out there in sort of the biggest way at that point in my career when I did a huge uh, real estate syndication in Buffalo, New York, and I, I live in Los Angeles, and I raised um, you know uh, two point five million dollars from twenty seven different investors for. Uh, a large piece of the of the deal is 387 apartments in Buffalo, New York, that we acquired all at one time. So I put myself way out my out of my comfort zone, and then for the next five years, everything and anything that could possibly go wrong owning apartments happened to me. Um, I mean, things from like SWAT team raids to 
you know, fires, multiple fires, murders, rapes, um, you know, I mean, anything horrible that you could think of that humans can do seem to have happened in my apartment buildings in Buffalo those first five years. I mean, I just inherited a portfolio of properties that came with uh, some of the most interesting people I've ever come across, certainly on planet Earth. And, uh, and so, you know, just when you didn't think it could get any worse, it kept getting worse. Um, there were definitely times where I wanted to throw in the towel and I was like, all right, Buffalo, you just don't want me here. I'm from LA, I get it, I'm an outsider, you don't want me here. Uh, and I, you know, I almost, uh, there were times where I really wanted to give up, you know, it was, it was that bad. Um, but my wife, actually, I still have it here. She, uh, she sent me this one time when I was out in Buffalo for two weeks, it's a paperweight, but it says never, never, never quit by Winston Churchill. It's quoted there at the bottom, Winston Churchill. So obviously if he had ever quit, we might all be speaking German. I probably wouldn't even be alive. Um, but, uh, you know, um, the idea that no matter what, and so, you know, given the support and love of my wife and we had two young kids at the time, she's like, you got to just stay in Buffalo, just keep doing it. Don't quit. Uh, and luckily, you know, I did, it took about five years of, of not quitting. Um, I literally had several, an entire, like a four drawer file cabinet in my office. Uh, I just labeled it hurdle number one, hurdle number two. And I ended up with, you know, dozens and dozens of hurdles, whether they were lawsuits or fires or insurance claims, or like I said, just about everything horrible you can imagine one after the next. And I just kept plowing through it. Um, that was certainly some of the biggest setbacks because I was, you know, personally on the hook for $8.3 million uh, uh, on the loan. So I personally guaranteed that. So it was a matter of life and death. Like if it didn't work out, you know, they're going to come from my house, my car, you know, everything else. Uh, and so no matter, you know, pretty much had to make it work, but it was, uh, it was a pretty major setback and it was, it was a pretty low and dark time, certainly at times. Um, but, uh, you know, I made it through and I'm certainly stronger for it. Like they say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And it's certainly true. <laughs> You know, I've talked to so many people that, um, you know, I think a lot of times, even now there's so many syndicators. I mean, you've, you've been at it for a while, but over the last, you know, five years, 10 years, it, it's become like the new thing to do. Right. And, um, yes. and I started syndicating during that time too. So I'm not putting myself where, where you're at even, but I think so many people think that it's just going to be this easy road. And, um, you know, it's that three feet from gold conversation. And, and the fact that you plowed through that is, is pretty impressive. So um, now to today, and I don't want to, I don't want to miss question number four, but would you say that that experience is, I mean, you've got a property management company now, um, you're deep in multifamily, which we'll get into more, but if you hadn't plowed through that first one, would you have continued on? No, I mean, if, you know, there was points where I was ready to just walk away and just be done, you know, and just say, yeah, I got my ass handed to me and, and that was it. Um, of course, the fact that I didn't and I plowed through it, I just kept looking at this paperweight, you know, and just remembering my wife and my kids back home while I was in fucking frigid Buffalo, <laughs> which was, you know, like negative 30 degrees at the time. Then, of course, my car broke, got broken into, and then they stole my driver's license, and I was supposed to fly home after two weeks in Buffalo, and I couldn't fly home. I mean, literally, like, just anything and everything you can imagine horrible just kept happening. Um but if I hadn't been through all of those things, I wouldn't have the confidence I have today to do the business that I do. So it's funny, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles, which is a very large city. It's the, it's, um, the largest in terms of rental multifamily housing in the United States. 
Um, it's a primarily, you know, our rental market. It's a very expensive market. I mean, obviously, New York City is expensive, San Francisco as well, but uh, but we have more units here, and it's spread out over you know huge area. Uh, and so there's a lot of opportunity here, but it was always expensive. Even back when prices were lower relative to other markets, it's always been expensive. And so for a new guy starting out in multifamily, it was very hard to penetrate. I mean, I did do a few deals. I started in real estate back in 2002 and I did a few deals and that is what launched me to do my bigger deal in Buffalo and sort of keep growing. Um, but I never probably would have had the confidence to be uh, to be a significant player, not I mean I'm not huge or anything, but like you know a decent sized player here in Los Angeles without having the Buffalo experience. So mm. it definitely gave me more confidence that if I can go through that, there's nothing you can throw at me here in LA that I haven't already been through or worse. Um, and so yeah, it definitely fueled my my personal growth, my professional growth, and uh, like I said, it's given me the confidence to uh, to do what I do in a very difficult, expensive market where you have a lot of big institutional money chasing deals. Um, and so I have found a way to be that sort of nimble, smaller player and pick up the 12 unit or the eight unit or the little deals that the bigger guys don't care about as much um, and just find my little niche. So yeah, it's definitely fueled my, uh, fueled my career. There's no question about it. Awesome. What is the piece of advice you find yourself sharing the most? Um, you know, people often ask me about in investments and, and investing. Um, and so I'm often talking, that's what I talk about the most because what I, you know, I know about the most in terms of it's my passion. It's, it's what I love to do. I read about what's going on in, in the markets and all markets, you know, obviously real estate, but also even just staying aware of banking and, and finance because that obviously has a huge impact on real estate. So understanding what's happening in then banking and Federal Reserve, you mentioned, you know, uh, G. Edward Griffin, I got the pleasure of meeting him as well. Uh, also one of my idols as well, and I got him to sign my my book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, of course, that he's famous for. Um, and so, you know, constantly learning about markets and staying in touch with the markets is what I, I enjoy, is what I'm passionate about. So it's what people ask me about the most. So, you know, lately with what's going on with COVID and the beginning of you know, what I believe will be the greatest depression, I think this will be far worse than people are realizing. Um, I believe also it'll turn into the greatest opportunities, but the biggest advice I'm giving to people these days is don't be too premature jumping into anything right now. Because if you just look at the last recession, 08, you know, till 11, let's say, the best opportunities for buying were really like in 2011. It took about three years until it really bottomed out. Uh, and so if this is, you know, the same or worse than that one, you know, it should be another three years probably till the best deals. It could be even longer because now the Fed and, and the government is printing all this money, unlike the last time where they, they did print money, but not at the scale and the level they're printing now. So that could actually delay the inevitable of this, you know, downward pressure in markets. So even though I'm in real estate, and I make a living, you know, selling and managing apartment buildings for clients, you know, I'm not, I'm not a very good salesman because I, my advice is don't buy something right now. Um, you know, I'd love to, you know, get, earn a commission, but I, I don't ever earn a commission at the expense of what's right. You know, I always feel that you got to do what's right for, for people. And, and I tell people what I would do. Now, it doesn't mean everyone agrees with me. I might tell people don't buy, and they're like, well, that's nice, Mike. Thanks for your advice, but we're going to buy anyway. I'm, okay, I'll write the offer. You know, I mean, like, I, I will always 
you know, be a good um, service provider and provide the service people want. But if you ask my opinion, I'm also going to be very honest. And sometimes I talk myself out of a deal uh, and that's fine. I, I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. I'm not in it for the one-off deal. Uh, really, my broker's business is a way to feed my client's investment business. And I look at it purely from an investment perspective. So it doesn't matter if I do a deal or don't do a deal. What does matter is that I, I give at least my opinion and then I feel good. Like I can sleep at night. I told you whether I would do the deal or not. Now, sometimes I'm wrong and they'll buy a deal and it turns out okay. But sometimes I'm right, and I'm not one to ever go back and say, well, you see, I told you so. Uh, but at least I feel better that I did say something. I did let them know my, my thought about it. Because I do think anyone who's buying right now um, in real estate is, is, is going to have a problem. I don't expect that uh, the upward trend we're seeing is going to continue forever. And then, in fact, a lot of markets, real estate prices are going up again still right now, or even more so now. Uh, but it's, in my view, temporary. Uh, what I am advising people to do is to uh, invest in gold and silver. I think that's your best investment. If you ask me, where do I put my money right now? There's no better investment than silver. And second, you know, second to silver, I would say gold. Um, and that's where I'm putting my money. Every time those prices dip, I, I buy a little bit more. Uh, and in my view, that'll protect my other investments if there is a big downturn like I'm expecting. But it also will give me the opportunity for liquidity if and when the opportunities come around, which I think they will in a couple of years. Um, I'll be ready because I expect gold and silver prices should be much higher by then. And then I can liquidate gold and buy real estate. Hard asset for hard asset. So I'm a huge believer in hard assets. And you know, one of the things I advise people to do, but I don't really give financial advice. I like to just tell people what I do. And what I do is. Um, I always try to rebalance every quarter. I look at my net worth and I'm trying to always rebalance to ensure that at least two thirds of my net worth is always in hard assets, right? And hard assets are obviously real estate, gold, silver. I mean, there's others, but those are the primary ones that I focus on. And then paper assets are cash in the bank, you know, or even hundred dollar bills sitting in your safe or under your mattress or wherever you keep it. Um, that's still a paper asset. Stocks, bonds, those are all paper assets. So a lot of people have maybe a house, but it's really their house, and that may not even be an investment. It's really just a place to live. And all their other investments are in stocks and bonds, and they think they're diversified. So what I try to say is you're really not diversified. You're still all in paper assets. You know, Get more of that in the hard assets, uh, and then I think you're more diversified. So that's, that's the advice I give lately. I... <laughs> I love it. And this is why I wanted to have you on the show. Like, obviously there is so much to unpackage there. Um, but let, let's rewind a little bit because the thing that I heard, you're, you're a real estate guy. And this is what I love about having conversations with guys like you, because you are in the industry, you're a real estate guy. And so I want to unpackage that a little bit first. So let's just go into, um, we heard the Buffalo story, but obviously you started in cosmetics um, just kind of bring us fast forward to your business, where you're at today. Just give us kind of the 30,000 foot view on how you went from cosmetics to real estate and what brought you to today. Sure. So, um, I, uh, when I was at UCLA, which is where I went to college, like I said, I'm from Los Angeles. So I, I grew up here. I went to school here. I needed a job uh, and I went to the job board at UCLA and there's this ad for, I couldn't even pronounce it at the time. It's Bijan Fragrances. It's B-I-J-A-N. I was like, is that 
Bijan, Bijan, how do you say that? I didn't even know. It's Bijan fragrances. And uh, and so all I knew was at that time, the minimum wage was like, um, I'm aging myself here, $4.75 an hour. Uh, you know, they were paying seven bucks. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. What do I got to do for seven bucks? And all I had to do was answer the 800 number uh, and take orders for people buying perfume over the, over the phone from magazine ads that they were placing. So that's how I got started. And over the years, while I was at that company, because it was a small company when I started in, two, in 1987 is when I started there while I was, you know, was part-time. Then I graduated UCLA in 92, and I kept working there. Back in the early 90s, we had another big recession, and a lot of college kids didn't think they were going to have a job, kind of like today. Weren't sure what jobs were even going to be available, if any. And so I was just lucky that I had a job. So I sort of fell into the cosmetics industry by accident. It certainly wasn't an intention. Um, but because, like I mentioned earlier, my boss, Sandra, was such an amazing mentor, and she challenged me. I'm obviously a learner. I'm always someone who is interested in, in learning new things. So as I would start in, in the, you know, answering the 800 line, then I wanted to learn, well, what happens after I place the order? How does the order go out? Well, it's packed and picked and packed and shipped and we're going to, you know, we're going to build our own warehouse because we were a growing company. I'm like, oh, well, can I be involved in that? And sure, you can come out and help us figure out where we want to put the warehouse, which was in Corona, California. And then as we grew from 12 people in the company to, you know, by the time I left, which was 12 years later, and the Michael Jordan Cologne thing was, was a part of that journey, um, you know, we had gone to, uh, we were a $200 million a year revenue company. We had 130 employees. So even though I wasn't an owner uh, of Bijan fragrances, I was there at the early stages. And because I was, you know, very curious and always watching and learning everything. And because I had a great boss who allowed me the opportunity, you know, she's like, well, why don't you go work in the warehouse for a few months? So I actually drove the forklift and I loaded the pallets and I unloaded the truck and I shrink wrapped the pallets and I picked and packed orders. And I really, loved and enjoyed the process of doing all aspects of the business. So I totally understood what it took to get it done. Over the years that I was there, I kept getting promoted. Eventually, I left as the as the chief operating officer and vice president of operations overseeing the operations of the entire business. But it's only because I got to keep learning each step of the way. Even for a while, I hated it. But my boss was like, you should go out and work in sales behind the counter at Macy's department store selling fragrances. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't want to do that. She's like, well, it's the only way you're going to really know what it's like to be a salesperson out on the front lines when you're bitching about picking and packing orders or this problem in operations. Now you'll have an understanding of what it's like when you're standing in front of the customer and the pump doesn't work or whatever the problem, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so she was really smart in saying, you know, go work in sales, go work. I even worked, uh, I worked with the international division and we rolled out the fragrance in San Andres, Colombia, which was amazing as a college student. I actually had to get permission from my professors to, to take off and go to Colombia because it was during finals and I had to reorganize all my finals. But I was like, so what's a life opportunity? I'm going to go to Colombia, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, this was exciting stuff as a college kid. So, um, I didn't really expect to be there that long, but like I said, because of those opportunities, and then of course she came up with the Michael Jordan idea, and then we, we blew that up. Now that was my first kind of entrepreneurial experience because the owner of Bijan Fragrances was smart, and it was him and Bijan was one of the owners, and his partner Dar, who was a real estate guy, interestingly enough, 
he would always talk to me in analogies about real estate. You see, when I built this condo project and we had to price out windows, you know, and he would teach me about negotiating price through real estate examples, even though we were in the cosmetic space. So that mm -hmm. was sort of my first intro a little bit to real estate from a guy who owned, he actually was the largest privately uh, owned real estate developer in Beverly Hills. He owns half of Rodeo Drive. They still own half of Rodeo Drive from oh, wow. the Rodeo Collection Mall, which is where our offices were, to Santa Monica, which is some of the most real estate, expensive real estate in, in the world. Um, and so eventually uh, I had the opportunity to start an internet company because my secret girlfriend, who is now my wife, because I met her at work. So she was head of marketing. I was head of operations. And our boss, Sandra, who I mentioned was our mentor and her mentor as well. Um, I'm not sure if she knew that we were dating, but we certainly didn't tell her. But she also was pretty smart. And so she probably had a sense. Um, but she was very we were all very discreet about it. It sort of went on for years. And then we worked on the Michael Jordan Cologne project. Um, and then when we did that project, we had the opportunity to actually own some shares, mm. like 10% of the company or something like that, something tiny. And so I thought like, now I know what it feels like to own a company and to be an entrepreneur, although it's not really the same thing because I have no control, no voting rights. You know, it didn't really mean anything to me, but at least it made me feel like I had some ownership in the, the Michael Jordan Cologne thing. So that's sort of what launched us into entrepreneurship. And then in 1999, my wife had uh, a business plan that she had developed with a friend of hers for a TV show in the cosmetics industry. And then uh, that was now the internet era of 99, the beginning of like, you know, massive internet tech boom. And so her friend who was living in San Francisco at the time knew someone at CSFB Bank, Credit Suisse, uh, First, First Boston, and, and basically was saying, uh, you know, why don't you turn your TV show idea into an internet idea? Maybe we can get funding for it. And we were like, okay. I didn't really even know what the internet was exactly in that time. I knew that uh, I had this AOL account. They sent you a disc in the mail. I mean, I know I'm dating myself again here, but they send you this disc in the mail. You put it in your computer. You got to plug in your phone line, and then it makes all these weird noises, and you're like chatting with girls. I was like, well, well that's kind of interesting. I could chat with girls like live in person, but you couldn't see anybody because the internet connection was really slow, of course. Um, and so from there, we launched an internet company, and we got VC funding, which surprised the hell out of all of us. And so that's how I left the cosmetics industry and, and became an entrepreneur was we raised $4.7 million dollars with two uh silicon valley lead investors if you ever watch the show silicon valley going to raise capital is exactly like they portrayed in that show you know it's just it's really funny all these different characters one guy's always on his you know back then blackberry no time to talk well what's the point what's the you know just get to the net net what's the net net i just want it from the thirty thousand foot like what are you talking about you know okay i gotta go you know uh, and those, and that's how you try to raise money. Uh, it was it was a crazy time, but because we were coming from the cosmetics industry, we were experts in that industry. We didn't really know much about technology or the internet. They're like, all right, we're going to hire a CTO. We're going to bring in some tech support. But at least you guys have an understanding of this, uh, of the the cosmetics industry and how to and how to market to the consumer. So that's what led us in our entrepreneurial journey. My my girlfriend at the time, now wife. Uh, and a third partner got together and we started this gloss.com was the name of it. Uh, a year later, we sold the company to Estee Lauder Companies, which is the largest cosmetics company in the United States. 
um, you know, Estee Lauder owns like 50 different brands. So when you go into, well, if you did go into a department store, I think they're all closed now, but when there were department stores and you walked in, you know, most of those, those, uh, first things you see in the cosmetics counters, you know, more than half of them were owned by Estee Lauder because they're all wow. these different brands, you know, Clinique and Bobby Brown and Mac cosmetics on and on and on. They're all Estee Lauder brands. So by selling our company to Estee Lauder, in the cosmetics industry, that means like you've made it. You're like at the number one. I actually moved to New York City. Our offices were on the 41st floor uh, of the GM building overlooking Central Park. Like, you know, I felt like, wow, I was, I had made it. Like, this is it, right? And for me, it was very disillusioning um, because it, it struck me very quickly that I'm not a corporate guy. I can't work in a big company. I can't work at the government uh, because these types of places force you to pigeonhole you into a little box. And I'm, I, I never fit into any box, whatever box there ever was. I never fit into any of them. I might've been a little bit in this box, a little bit in that box. And so it drove me nuts because we couldn't make decisions. I was used to being an entrepreneur, making decisions, small company. We make a decision and we implement it within five minutes, mm -hmm. you know, here you deliberate over a decision for two years before you even make a decision. <laughs> totally. uh, and it just, I, you know, I just, I couldn't take it. So that's what started me on my like, well, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Because now I had already made it to the top and there was nowhere else to go, but maybe down in the cosmetics industry. Uh, I never, I realized I'd never chosen to be in that industry. And so after two years with Estee Lauder, I moved back to LA during all that, actually, before the internet thing, I started, I, I did buy my first piece of real estate. I didn't quite know what I was doing. All I knew was I was a tenant in an apartment building that was not under rent control. And I didn't really understand about rent control back then. <laughs> totally. uh, and my apartment was $695 a month. And then after a year, they raised me to $750, which I thought was kind of a big increase. But then a year later, they raised me to $850. And I was like, wait a minute, how is that even possible? I mean, these are small numbers nowadays, right? But back then, that was like, you know, that seemed like a lot of money. Yeah. So, of course, there wasn't any internet. This was in the mid-90s. So I'm like, I got to figure this out. So I went to the library and I asked the librarian, how can I look up local laws, regulations, you know, my, my building raised my rent. Are they allowed to do that? How do I look the laws up on this kind of thing? And she's like, well, there's, you know, LA has rent control and here's all the stuff you can read about rent control. And I started reading all these things on microfilm and all this, you know, like just researching this. And I was like, wait a minute. So if the building was built in 1978 or before, then they cannot raise your rent except for what the city tells you. But if it was built after 1978, they can raise the rent, whatever you want. I was like, man, I need to be the landlord and not the tenant. Like that was just the moment where I decided I had no idea what I was even saying to myself or thinking or why, you know, like I didn't know anything about it, but I just knew like, if they can do that to me, then I want to be them. Like, that's just, that's all I knew. And that was the seed that sort of got planted in my brain in 98. But then it wasn't really until 2002 that I actually started thinking, more about it. So in 98, by the way, I did buy my first property. I got out of the apartment that I was in and I bought a fourplex and I moved into one of the units. And then within six months, one of my tenants moved out, which I was really concerned about because I didn't really have any money left to fix it up. Luckily, it was in good enough shape. I was able to clean <laughs> and paint it myself. Totally. Uh, and then I was able to raise the rent because they had this thing called West Side Rentals which not online back then, but it was like a newspaper thing and you get this thing and it's like people from the west side of LA 
read it. And my building wasn't really on the west side per se, but it was sort of west enough that it was like, maybe I can get the rents they're getting all the way in Santa Monica. You know, I thought, mm -hmm. I don't know, I'll try it. So I put a ridiculously high rent, not thinking I would get it. Uh, and I got it. Wow. And the rent went from like 600 bucks a month to 950. I didn't think 950 was possible, you know, back in 1998. Uh, but because the rent went up that much, now I was living rent free. Like mm. the three tenants in my fourplex paid all my, my mortgage, my taxes, my insurance. I was literally living in my two bedroom apartment for free. And if I wasn't married with kids, I'd probably still be living there because like free is pretty good. Yeah. Um, it's easy to get comfortable, you know, and I think if I didn't have my wife, I would have gotten pretty complacent. I would not be anywhere near where I am in my life now if I wasn't for my wife. She's definitely someone mm. who pushes me. Yeah. But uh, what's interesting is that that seed was planted and then 2002 came along trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I'm thinking maybe I should sell my little fourplex and like trade it up for a bigger property. I didn't quite know about 1031 exchanges and any of that stuff yet. I did, however, remember that I played poker with a guy eight years before this and that this guy was some hotshot real estate multifamily expert. That's all I remember. Like he was really full of himself, knew everything about apartments. And uh, he was, he just left this imprint, but I couldn't remember his name. So I called my friend, hey, remember that guy we played poker with that knew about apartments? Do you remember his name? He said, yeah, here's his name, here's his number. I called him up. He shows up at my fourplex in his red Target Porsche convertible, blasting the music with the top down. And uh, he's like, oh, is this the fourplex I'm gonna list? And I'm like, well, I mean, I haven't decided I'm gonna sell it, but I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, maybe I should sell it, maybe I should get a bigger building, you know, like, how do I, what do I do? How do I do that? And so that's what really started me on the journey. At that time, uh, like I said, I left the cosmetics industry. I started a consulting company in the interim to figure out kind of what I wanna do with my life. Uh, I knew my experience had been in growing businesses, having been at Bichon and then the Michael Jordan thing and now the internet thing. And so I had a few entrepreneurial, you know, successes under my belt. So I leveraged that and created strategic growth consulting services, which I actually still have to this day, although my wife does most of the consulting work now for it. Uh, and we help mostly small to medium sized companies grow, uh, you know, uh, putting systems into place, putting in a, you know, three year plan, five year plan and helping them to implement the plan. So while I was doing consulting, and now this guy's listing my fourplex and helping me exchange, I ended up doing a 10, 1031 exchange into an 11-unit building. Um, he started to talk to me about getting involved in the business, in, in real estate. And I was like, no, I don't want to get into sales or do any of that kind of stuff. I'm just looking as an investor. I'm just thinking, you know. And uh, and so the and that time, I was also just exploring all the different things you can invest in. So I looked at stocks. I looked at bonds. I looked at oil and gas. I looked at real estate. I was reading books on stock investing and the Warren Buffett way and the Peter Lynch uh, books and things like that. Uh, and during those years, I ended up coming to the conclusion, which was kind of an interesting for me, a circle back that of all the things one can invest in. And of course, this was over a period of years, but I was trying and dabbling in all these different things. And I never could figure the stock thing out because it seemed to be some completely out of my control. Other people in Wall Street are doing things and that's affecting my, my net worth, you know? And so I kept coming back to real estate and then I even explored within real estate, is it like house flipping? Is it apartment buildings? Is it hotels? Is it commercial, other types of commercial assets? And I really did a lot of like research. I'm very um, 
I don't know, I'm very uh, research-based. I do a lot of reading and a lot of studying. I, I'm, I, I spend a lot of time in my head. Of course, now I'm working on getting more back into my body and my spiritual side, which is mm -hmm. a whole different, you know, I'm reinventing myself in that area. But for years before all of this, um, I lived in my head. Uh, and, I, you know, just constantly reading and studying and learning and trying to figure things out. I kept coming back to apartments as like the number one thing you could invest in of everything. And I, like I said, I tried everything and anything at one time or another. I've certainly lost money on a bunch of different investments that didn't work out. Uh, but I just kept coming back to apartments. The funny thing about that is that when I was a kid, when I was 10 years old, my mother, for some reason, who had no business experience, who really had never actually even really worked, she was more like a house a housewife back then, um, you know, in the 60s, 70s. And uh, she came up with this idea in 1978 that, that they should buy an apartment building. And my dad didn't quite understand why or what we were doing this for, but she kind of had this gut feeling like, you know, we should, we should do this. Mm. But they didn't have enough money, so they borrowed the money for the down payment from my dad's parents. And then they bought their first apartment building, which I still, my sister and I now have inherited it. We, we still own it to this day. Hmm. Um, that one seven-unit apartment building is what carried my mom the rest of her life. My, my parents ended up buying one more building. They got divorced when I was 13 years old, and they each got one building. And they pretty much lived the rest of their lives on those each one building each, which is like crazy. Now, of course, LA, the rents are really high. Uh, by that point, they had paid off the mortgage. And I remember thinking as a kid, well, if these apartment buildings worked out so well for them, why didn't they buy more of them? Like, why did they just buy one, you know? Uh, and so now here I am years later after all of my, you know, stint in the cosmetics industry. And I've, I've come to the conclusion that my mom was a genius, <laughs> even though at the time I hated it because that man as a 10, 11, 12 year old kid, every time there was a vacancy, we had to go over there. I had to scrub the toilets, paint the apartment, change the locks, do all this stuff because they couldn't afford to hire anybody. And so, you know, we did everything ourselves, which is, you know, which is why I hated it and why I thought I would never be in this business growing up. And now here I am in the multifamily business. So very interesting how life comes around full circle. But I had to come to that conclusion on my own with a lot of research and a lot of studying. Um, and I truly firmly believe for the average person the number one way to build wealth is to create a business and build a business. There's mm -hmm. no question about it, but that's hard. And, uh, and not everyone has the skill set. You have to be able to lead people, manage people, inspire people. That's a very difficult skill. It means you have to work on yourself to get there. So if you can't build a business uh, to create wealth, I think the number two best way to build wealth is let's say you make a lot of money at your job. You have a high paying job. You're an executive at a big company, whatever then the second best way to build wealth is invested in real estate and in all the places you can invest in real estate. To me, multifamily is the most accessible to an investor. You know, it's very hard to uh, start out and buy a shopping center or, a, you know, an industrial building, uh, but it's not so hard to buy a duplex or a fourplex or a six unit or whatever and, and sort of figure that out. And, and, and little by little, you can really build wealth. But you know, due to so many different reasons, and it's, it's, it's actually in my book that I haven't published, but I, I did write a draft of a book about investing in multifamily, about the five ways in which you make money investing in real estate. Um, and there's really no other investment where you can make money as, and build wealth as easily and quickly as, as in real estate. And it's all entirely based on the fiat currency system that exists in the world today. Um, maybe if that system changes one day, that will change real estate. But as long as the current fiat currency, fiat currency system exists, 
uh, there really is no better way because they're goosing the system in your favor. Uh, and so, you know, that's how I've, uh, I, I, once I made that determination, I, I went full speed into, into uh, learning property management, learning the business. I eventually got my broker's license and, you know, I've, I've made a career out of it. And that's what I, I plan to do the rest of my life. I love it. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's fun. Um, it's difficult. It's challenging. And especially in LA and California now, there are new laws literally every day uh, about what you can do or can't do, certainly a moratorium on evictions, of course, and all kinds of new laws. So I actually think it's going to chase a lot of landlords out of California and certainly out of Los Angeles, um, which is good for me because I'll be the only one left or one of few, <laughs> let's say, left, right? And yeah. I'll be able to pick up the pieces of what's left in this market in a few years. So. That's my uh, that's my grand strategy of how I got to where today. Sorry, it was a little long. No, but. I love it, and obviously for the listeners, we're going to make this a two part series. I I'm I'm glad that you um, shared all that, and and again, there's just a ton of value and wisdom there. Um, but I, I really wanted I really wanted you to share that because um, some of the stuff that we're going to get into, um, you do love real estate, and you're a real estate investor, and you're an advocate of business, and you're an advocate of wealth building. Um, but on the other side of that, um, we're in some interesting times and a lot of times, you know, we get in our real estate investing circles, we get in our investing circles and everybody, everybody's an opportunist. Like we're constantly talking about how great everything's going to be. Right. And literally just even this last week in Breckenridge, I was having some conversations. I, I lean more toward the camp. I'm still looking for opportunity and I think there is opportunity, but it's getting harder and harder. And right now, if I was a new investor and I've been kind of putting the brakes on um, because while I want people to go out and experience what we've experienced in life, we need to be double and triple and quadruple careful of investing right now and where we put our money. And so the cash is trash and the cash is king panel, all of that stuff. That's really why I wanted to have you on because you are an opportunist. You are an optimist. You are a I don't want to speak for you, but you're, you're a capitalist. You're a dreamer at your core, but you're saying right now, be careful. Yes. Um, so a couple more questions. Um, and then we're going to segment into probably episode two. Um, you, you have a property management company right now. Give us, give us kind of the overview. What does the property management company look like? Um, where are you at high level on, you know, investment? What do you manage? Um, don't need specifics, but I just want to give people some context because some of the next conversation parts that we're going to get into, I really want people to understand that you're not a doomsdayer. Um, you believe yeah. in opportunity, right? So hundred percent. It's funny. It's, it's a fine line because I, I feel like I am a realist, right? But, uh, and I love the, uh, the quote, um, you know, prepare for the worst, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I always, everything I, every investment decision I make, everything I do in business is always in preparation for the next downturn. There's always going to be another downturn. Of course, now we're in one, uh, and this one's a doozy. This one I think will be the biggest one. Anybody alive today has experienced maybe with the exception of the great depression. If there are people who lived through the great depression, I mean, they'd have to be a hundred years old, you know, or, you know, 90 years old nowadays. So there's some people around, they might remember the Great Depression, uh, probably not. Even if you're 90, that means you were just born and, it, you know, during the Great Depression, you probably don't remember it as a baby. But uh, most people living today do not know what a Great Depression really looks like or feels like. And I believe that we're at the very early stages of one right now. 
Um, so to me, this will be the greatest shock our society and the world has ever experienced for pretty much everyone alive on, on Earth today. So that's a pretty big statement. And I, I come to that conclusion from many, many years of studying cycles. You know, I've read all of Harry Dent's books about cycles, and he's a real doom and gloomer. He's been saying gold's going to go down to $700 for years. Now, I didn't believe him, which is why I invested in gold. So even though, you know, I listen to certain people, that doesn't mean I listen, I believe everything they say or I agree with everything they say. But my philosophy has always been take in every different angle, every point of view that you can on a particular topic you're interested in, and then make your own conclusions. You make your own decisions using your own critical thinking mind, which unfortunately is very much lost in America today. Our media does all the thinking for most people. I don't even really watch the news. I haven't in, in you know more than most of my life, actually. But uh, certainly after 9-11, I pretty much turned off the news and, and really never turned it back on until COVID hit. And I made the mistake of turning it back on for two weeks and I got really sick. I actually got COVID, got really sick. And then I realized, you know, this is actually only making me more sick. And I turned it all back off again. And I'm, I'm, I'm done. You know, I, I get enough alerts to know what's going on in the world, but I certainly don't watch the news media. Um, I listen to economists who I trust. People like you mentioned, James Rickards. He's a great source. I've read all his books. Uh, another guy I like, I like is Mike Maloney. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always taking in information and then I'm making my own conclusions about it. This is a very dangerous time for new investors, especially because, um, and you're right, we get caught up in the real estate industry where it's always great. It's always great. And I've always been the one to say, well, I think another downturn is coming. And I'm usually a little early, you know, and I always say I'd rather be a year or two too early than one day too late. Because mm -hmm. the minute the, start, the market starts going down quickly, now, unless you get ahead of it and lower your asking price, let's say, if you're selling an asset ahead of it, um, you know, you're going to you're going to be chasing that market down for a, quite a long time. And some people just keep chasing it down and then they may end up losing the property. So it can be a very dangerous time. Um, my business in L.A. right now. So we're we're, we're a property management company managing around uh, 250 units. We're not a huge company. Um, but remember, L.A. real estate, the average uh, cost per unit is two hundred fifty thousand dollars a door. Um, you know, so we're, we're managing a very sizable portfolio of real estate. Um, I own an interest in probably about a third or so of those units or maybe slightly more. Um, and then the rest are third party property management. And these are clients where, you know, some of them were brand new investors and I sort of walked them through the process. I helped them. What, what I like to do is, is teach people how to fish, right. And not do the fishing for them, but show them how to. So. I'll show people how to underwrite a deal, how to look at the numbers objectively, and how to assess if it's a good deal or not a good deal. Once I've taught you how to do this, and some people are better than others with numbers and, and spreadsheets, it's not that complicated. Anybody can figure it out if you focus on it. I know it's harder for some people than other people. For me, numbers sort of dance in my head and like they just, they, they're like magic. I love numbers. And so, and of course, with leverage and what you can do with real estate, the possibilities are very exciting. So I love to run the numbers in my head. But I like to teach my clients how to do this. And then I just set them up on my MLS feed and, uh, you know, for what they're looking for. And I let them go to work and mm -hmm. analyze deal after deal. And every deal is going to be bad. And every deal is not going to cash flow. And every deal is not going to hit their criteria. And then one day they're like, oh, my God, I think I found a great deal. And they'll, they'll send me a like, Mike, what do you think about this? You know, 
those are the those are the those are the uh, emails I love or those phone calls I love because it shows that they've been paying attention. They're looking at it because if I do it for them, they're really not an investor. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I yeah. want people to become an investor, if they, especially if they're buying it with their money. It's their property. It's their deal. It's not my property. I'm going to help you. I'm going to manage it for you, and we'll do a great job. But at the end of the day, you're responsible for the. You know, I sold a, a client a building recently, a fourplex, and then COVID hit. You know. I mean, before COVID, I could have told you exactly what the numbers were going to be. Well, now, you know, they had three out of their four tenants not paying. Now, the good news is, luckily, we were lucky. Three, They all moved out. I mean, they could have just stayed there and not paid, which would have been horrible. Uh, but luckily, they moved out, and now we've turned them all over, and it's, and it's cash flowing, which is great. But, it, you know, it was six months of, of you know, things not going the way they were, they were planning to go. So, but those are the people I like to work with because then – they're in it for the long haul, and usually they want to buy multiple properties. And after we do a good job on managing this property and hopefully bringing the value out of it, then when it's time for them to list it and sell it, I'll get that listing. I'll help them sell it, and then I'll help them, you know, through a 1031 into their bigger, their next property, which will be their bigger property, and sort of keep growing. I've got clients I've been working with for years who have been, you know, exchanging, exchanging, and just keep, you know, uh, building it up. Um, those are people I like to work with and, uh, they're like-minded people and they call me and I give them my advice. I'm always staying on the cutting edge of what's happening in the markets and what's happening certainly in the legal world that relates directly to multifamily. And there's a lot always happening in LA, uh, and, and in California in general. So we stay on top of that for our clients. And then we, you know, we, we give them the updates. We let them know what's going on. Um, but that's really, you know, that's the, that's the nut basically of what I do. I love it. Um, I just like, I just love, you know, I, I love the opportunity of looking at a deal, running a deal, and then walking through a building for me is also really fun. I don't know. I just, I really like it. I, I always see the pod, like you said, I am an optimist. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, my, my normal stance is optimism. You wouldn't do any investing if you weren't an optimist because mm-hmm. you would always be too afraid to pull the trigger. You have to be an optimist to make even one investment. Yeah. Uh, because you have to think it's gonna something great's gonna happen with it, or you wouldn't put up your money. Yeah, they don't. You're not always right. You only have to be right more times than you're not. By the way, you don't have to always be right, right. to 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 get rich in real estate. You just have to be right more than you're not right. Yeah, um, it's not that hard. I'll never I'll never forget when I joined um, the Real Estate Guys Mastermind. Maybe you're familiar with the Real Estate Guys Radio Show. Um, but anyway, I joined their mastermind, and part of the application process, they asked the question like, "What is your?" greatest weakness as an investor. And I said, I'm the eternal optimist. And I realized that about myself as an early business owner slash investor. Um, you know, what makes us successful and good investors, et cetera, is our optimism. But it's also a double-edged sword because when we go into everything thinking um, through that lens of optimism, you know, we kind of have to learn the hard way. And like you said, we, don't, we, have, we just have to be right more times than we're wrong. Uh, but I've learned to temper that optimism. And I try to replace that word with um, opportunistic, right? I'm, I'm an opportunist. And so, um, because I can buy my own bullshit, if you will, um, through that. We all can. I mean, it's so easy to get emotionally charged up with your optimism. So that's where the numbers come in Mm -hmm. because the numbers, the numbers never lie. And in in my view, I mean, you Mm -hmm. can certainly manipulate numbers to tell a story if you want to, but if you're being objective and just looking at the numbers, the numbers won't lie. So that's your, 
back to basics, back to logic, and back to, you know, your critical mind making a decision versus your emotional like, oh my God, this is so exciting. I think I can, I can, I think this could be a huge winner, right? I mean, you get so caught up into what the potential is for a deal um, that you, I've, I've been right there with you where I've gotten so close. And then, you know, luckily I did my due diligence and, and I backed out, but like, you know, of the deals where I got, I was too, I knew I was too emotionally involved and not making the, the best decision. Um, you know, and the, the one good thing about real estate, if you wait long enough and it could be, you know, in this case now you might have to wait years because it's going to go down and it's going to go up again. You know, if you wait long enough, right. Real estate time always heals all wounds in real estate. But you got to be able to wait long enough. And sometimes people can't make it through a downturn. If you've over leveraged yourself right now, you're going to struggle in the next couple of years. Um, you know, cash flow is king. You know, I don't think cash is king, but cash flow is king. Yeah. Because in a downturn, even if your rents have to drop, if you have enough cash flow, and I always stress test my deals. You know, if rents drop by 20%, am I still making money? If they drop by 40%, you know, am I making money? Am I breaking even? Am I losing money? You know, and, and somewhere in there should be your your break even. Um, if your break even is, you know, if it drops 10%, you're losing money, you're probably going to not do so well uh, mm -hmm. in the next couple of years. So you got to really, you know, make sure you know where the numbers are. And the, and the longer you're in a bull market, which this was the longest bull market we've had in decades, maybe ever, I don't know, but like 10, 11 year bull market, um, the longer the bull market, the closer you are to the end of the bull market, which is a bear market, right? Yeah. So, so you got to get more and more conservative in your underwriting and expect higher and higher cash flow, the closer you are to the end of it. But the, uh, the, un, the, that's harder to do. Like you said, the deals are fewer and farther between most people jumping in now are buying at ridiculously high valuations, extremely low cap rates. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's very dangerous in my view, because in a couple of years, they, they may lose those properties. Yeah. It's really I think this is a great place for us to segment into episode two. So a couple things, takeaways that I heard from Mike. I mean, this is just an phenomenal, phenomenal story here. Um, the number one way to build wealth is to build a business. The number two best way to build wealth is through real estate. Um, so I wanted to just kind of set this up. The next episode, which you guys do not want to miss, we're going to get behind the, the, the lens or get into Mike's brain on, you know, what he really thinks is happening, coming. And as he mentioned in this episode, he's very uh, studious when it comes to this. I don't feel that Mike is just flippantly throwing out his opinions and ideas. I think he is an expert in this field. And so you don't want to miss the next episode. But Mike, for now, if people want to um, find you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? And guys, I will say this. I mean, obviously, Mike's a busy guy. Um, as he shared, you know, he can help you in real estate, but I don't think Mike's um, a coach. I don't think he has necessarily a real estate 101 investing program. So if you're interested in, you know, truly looking at real estate, um, go ahead and reach out to Mike. But, you know, other than that, what's the best place for, for people to find you, Mike? Yeah, I mean, my, uh, my website is Strategic Growth. R-E, as in realestate.com, strategic growth, G-R-O-W-T-H-R-E.com. Um, you can email me, Mike, M-I-K-E, at strategicgrowthre.com. Um, and I have some videos on my website and it give you, I mean, it's kind of, I haven't updated my website recently, um, but, you know, it gives you a sense of who we are, what we do. Um, yeah, I mean, I always enjoy talking about real estate and I certainly don't mind, uh, you know, having conversations with people around it. 
like you said, I don't have a formal coaching program at this point. I thought maybe in the future I might develop that, especially if, uh, if I can get my act together and get my book done. Um, you know, then from there, I think it can lead into a potential uh, education or coaching program, something like that. But yeah, it's, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great business. I like talking about it. Um, but like you said, it's, uh, it's difficult to start right now. But it's definitely not difficult to start learning right now. In fact, learning right now and being paying attention right now is the best opportunity because mm -hmm. you're going to see how markets will evolve. Yep. Uh, you know, if what you and I are projecting comes true and there's a difference in valuations a year from now or two years from now, you're going to recognize that because you're looking and you're paying attention. Mm -hmm. So, so learning and jumping in from an educational standpoint right now is extremely beneficial. Just don't get too overzealous and too impatient to want to jump in too soon until you really see where the markets are headed. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, we're, we're definitely in for some really interesting opportunities in the next few years for sure. I love what Mike just said. And, you know, we've been talking about this for the last couple of months. If you've got a thousand or 5,000, or even if you don't have any money, you know, probably the best place um, to start is really changing your mindset, educating yourself. And that's a blanket statement that I think exists no matter what period of time we're in, but even more so now because it is dangerous to just jump in um, right now without the education piece. So stay tuned for episode number two, where again, we're going to get into the mind of Mike. And I think it's just going to be a very enlightening conversation. Thanks for being on the show, Mike. All right. Thank you. No problem. It's fun. If you found value in this episode and you know someone who's wanting to start or move further along in their journey toward investing for freedom, I would be forever grateful if you would share this show with them and help me get this message out to more listeners. Also, if you enjoy what you've heard, I would appreciate it if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. And until the next episode, cheers to moving further along in your journey of investing for freedom.